Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 37 of the End of Sport podcast. I'm Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. We have uh, actually a really exciting episode for you today. Uh, we had the chance to talk to Tezra Abe, uh, a former golfer at the University of Texas, uh, a former uh, mentor to students at the University of Michigan while she was a law student and, and now uh, soon to be a federal clerk. Uh, and I mean, all I can say is she just really breaks down the dynamics of college sport from the standpoint both of like why, why everything is as it is, but also how it's experienced, how she experienced it, how others she knew experienced it. Um, and this is the stuff that I know that Johanna agrees with me. Like, this is why we want to have a podcast like this, to share stories that don't get heard too often. Um, and it's always particularly exciting for us to have athletes, former athletes, on the show to share those experiences because these are the ones that the mainstream media doesn't share. Um, these are the things we encounter sometimes in our own work as researchers uh, that get us so excited. And we want other people to have the chance to hear these stories too because um, it's really hard to buy the NCAA's lines when you hear what it looks like for the actual athletes who are living it. Um, and that's what we need more of. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to reiterate what Nathan said, I think everyone, I think y'all are really going to love it and just really learn a lot. Um, and I just, yeah, we just can't wait for you to listen to it. And as always, if you like the podcast, please, please, please rate, review, subscribe, leave us text reviews, um, tweet at us or, or um, tag us on Instagram for both. The handle is at end of sport pod. You could also email us um, if you want to write something a little longer. Um, our address is the end of sport at gmail.com. And as we've been saying, we have a great new website, which is www.theendofsport.com. Um, please support us through our Patreon page. And uh, yeah, can't wait to hear what you guys think and please enjoy the show. Tezra Abe was the first black athlete on the University of Texas Austin women's golf team and is a recent graduate of the University of Michigan Law School. She is also about to begin a federal clerkship, uh, which is very exciting. Tezra, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm, happy, I'm so happy to be here. Okay, well, we have lots we want to get into, but we have to ask you the question that we ask everyone at the beginning of the show, uh, which is, you know, how's life? How have the pandemic, um, the uprisings, everything that's taken place in the last many, many months, how have they all been treating you in El Paso, Texas? You're, I think you might be the first person talking to us from Texas, if I have that right. Well, that's also very exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I just recently moved to El Paso. The pandemic's been pretty difficult, I think, for, I mean, a number of women reasons. Um, first, you know, I'm a Black woman. So just, you know, like the weight of being Black in America right now has been quite difficult. Um, second, I recently graduated from law school. Um, and I'm trying to study for the bar exam in this crazy time. And there's been a lot of, you know, drama and um, kind of uncertainty with respect to the bar exam. So that's been quite difficult. Um, I think third, just like moving twice during this pandemic, you know, um, and then. Oh, my Lord. Yes. Yeah, oh my. yeah. And then I think finally just, you know, kind of doing 
a lot of advocacy. I'm doing a lot of advocacy right now. So I took an extra job with an um, public defense organization in New York and I'm studying for the bar and I'm doing some advocacy with respect to Michigan law. And then I'm also doing kind of like the advocacy that I chose, like I came to law school for, which is, you know, on behalf of student or college athletes. Um, so um, it's, yeah, it's been an interesting time, but um, I, I don't know, like I'm, I'm very grateful to, to, you know, feel the drive and the desire to want to do this work right now. I think um, I'm very privileged to, you know, to feel like I can do it and I can take it all on. So um, it's a little exhausting, but I'm also like really happy to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds really exhausting. Um, <laughs> but it's also, it's, listen, it's obviously terrific work that you're doing. Um, and you know, this is the time really, if there's ever been a time, this is the time for these conversations about advocacy with college athletes. Um, so we're thrilled to have you right now because this is, I mean, I, I can speak only for myself here, but it's like, this is what I'm thinking about <laughs> practically 24 seven, uh, these days. So, one of the reasons why we're particularly excited to have you is because we've been doing a lot of talking about the men's revenue side of college sport, right? Um, for obvious reasons, it's, you know, it's, it drives the conversation about college sport. And also we've seen some incredible developments, especially on the football side, uh, which deserve that level of discussion. Um, but there's also a really complex, in my mind, a really complex question of how these issues around working conditions and exploitation relate to non-revenue sport in general and women's non-revenue sport specifically. And so um, not, not that we are, are going to avoid the topic of revenue sport, because I think you know it's all part of a larger system as well. But we are so excited to talk to you about your experiences in college at, at the University of Texas and your reflections on all that's playing out in front of us today. So I think it's helpful to go back to the very beginning uh, to start the conversation. And the way we want to do that is I always like to ask athletes on our show, how did you get introduced to and become involved in your sport? Yeah, so um, I my my dad is um, an immigrant. He's from Uganda, and he, yes, he came to he came to the states and he played soccer in college. Um, and when he started working, he moved to Texas. Initially, he was in Dallas, and I think. Um, that's where he started playing golf at public courses in, in the area there. And then um, he moved down to um, South Texas. I grew up in Angleton. So that's where my parents lived initially. Um, and we didn't have, I grew up, Angleton's a pretty small town. We didn't have a golf course there, but my dad worked in Freeport and there was a golf course there. Um, so he would go out with his buddies um, on the weekends and, and play golf. And my sister and I ended up kind of like tagging along with him. Um, at, he was that someone I think then mentioned um, the first T program to him. And I want to say when we were about 11, when I was about 11 years old, and my sister was about nine years old, um, my dad first or both of my parents actually first took us to the first T of Houston. Um, and that's kind of where it all started. Um, we, you know, uh, took our first lessons there and, um, you know, started the first C program. And um, yeah, I guess the rest is like history. <laughs> well, can you actually tell us a little bit? Because uh, I think some of our listeners may be unfamiliar. What is First T? Yeah, so the First T is um, a nonprofit organization um, that really uses golf to teach students um, life skills. 
I think it's the youngest students you typically start there is about seven years old. Um, and they have different levels of classes. So they have, you know, it starts at like par, then it goes to birdie level, um, eagle level, ace level. And you kind of go through each class depending on your age. And um, yeah, you just like learn. They have what they call like the nine core values, which are, you know, values such as like respect and responsibility and courage and um, judgment. And um, yeah, it's just like a great organization. Um, it's in a lot of cities for the most part. Um, so Houston, when I was there, they had two separate um, locations. Now there's just like the overall first team of greater Houston. Um, but I think, you know, almost every major city has um, a program and they're in, now in schools. Um, and then um, they also are in, you know, like kind of rural areas. So I think like, well, I, I don't know if I would consider like Tyler, Texas, like quote unquote rural, but like, you know, they're in you know areas that are, um, you know, not considered quote unquote urban. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful program. Um, I, you know, made a lot of friends and, and received a lot of really awesome opportunities through it. Um, and I credit it to, you know, a lot of the values that I have today. That's excellent. Thanks so much for laying that out for us. I am one of those people who had never heard of it. So I really appreciate <laughs> you, you explaining it so, so well for us. Um, and so we're going to kind of like dive right into some of the uh, more, I guess, challenging questions. And this is partly because the MO of our podcast is to highlight how sports can be really harmful to athletes. And um, so we're going to tackle this issue of racism in golf because um, there really isn't a whole lot of points sort of dancing around it. Um, now, as a lot of people are probably or hopefully familiar with, the foundation of golf and golf courses and country clubs not only in the U.S., but worldwide, was built upon white supremacy and the purposeful exclusion of communities of color and non-elites. And if we start from this vantage point, it is not hard to understand how sort of anti-Black and other forms of racism were really endemic to golf from the start. And though while we'll get to the racist incident you faced in college a little bit later, um, a lot of sort of white people would prefer to say that what happened was like an isolated or sort of one-off thing by bad apples. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, sort of what role did racism play or, or do you think racism might play for golfers like at all levels, kids, adults, those sorts of things? Um, yeah, wow. That's, you know, that's a huge question. I think I could probably talk about this for, you know, a whole hour, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, I mean, I think kind of, you know, kind of distilling it. Um, I mean, racism is everywhere in golf and I, I mean, it's, it continues to show up to me in ways that I didn't even think it showed up when I was, when I thought that I was like really aware of it, you know, in college or in high school. So I guess I could just kind of like throw out some examples. Um, I think, you know, it, de it depends like where for kids, you know, first it depends, I think where they, they grew up, they grew up playing golf um, at the first tee of Houston, um, you know, was it was really diverse. I don't think any I think all of my coaches were black. Um mm -hmm. and I think we were majority minority. So most of the kids that I played with were black and brown. So I didn't really notice I think racism in golf until I want to say I started practicing at places that were not the first tee of Houston. Mm -hmm. Um I would say, 
you know, the courses that I played primarily growing up, um, the Wilderness Golf Course in Lake Jackson, which is a small town outside of Ingleton where I grew up, and um, Freeport Golf Course. Uh, I, I those places I started um, noticing racism a lot more. Um, I remember I was called the N word the first time on the golf course at the Wilderness, which is a public course, and and um, but that was also my home course. You know, I loved it very much, but it was also like very. It was it's it's I think it's a weird um, kind of, I don't know. It's, it's very strange being, you know, like a long, a young black girl, um, at her quote unquote home course and, um, you know, being called the N word at this place that you love so much. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, racism is very overt. It's also very covert. You know, I think I remember reading, Recent oh, well, this year about how I believe it's LA Country Club is on public property and it's one of the most exclusive clubs and clubs in California, um, and it's in the middle of LA and it's you know pe- residents of this city are paying for you know this um the land that this club is on and to me that's very interesting and very striking because LA also has a huge homelessness problem yeah. uh and so I, I it and racism shows up there right because if you look at the membership of LA Country Club I mean I have not those these things are usually private I would say that probably less than 5% of their members are black right and if you compare that to the homeless population in LA, you'll see like a huge stark difference. Um, so yeah, racism shows up everywhere. Um, in golf, I could go on and on, but, uh, yeah, I think people probably get the picture. (laughs) Yeah, no, that that's, I mean, that's, uh, it's a really clear picture you're painting. And I think that, you know, please feel free throughout to kind of draw on that again, because I, obviously that's going to be, a, that's a theme that right. uh, recurs throughout everything that you experience in the world of golf, obviously. And, and your point about the public private spaces is such a great one, um, because I mean, that that is, again, another theme in like US history, the way in which the state upholds white supremacy, right? It's not, it's not just right. like, the problem is not just capitalism, like, capitalism is aided by uh, a white supremacist state uh, so the sort of system of racial capitalism um yeah it, like we have this myth of the free market but the the, the free market doesn't actually exist in the united states it only exists when when people want to make an intervention to to help those who are crushed by the market then we can't possibly have uh, a visible hand intervening but uh right when it comes to bailing out the market as we well know in these days um yeah there's plenty of room for the state to intervene uh, not not to go not to get into a, a separate conversation about political economy here, um, right? But anyway, sorry, sorry. We can uh, put a pin in that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Let's put a pin in that one. Um, so here, let's let's get back to let's get to the college piece now, um, because for me, one thing that's fascinating, and I've mentioned this before on the show, you know, I I teach. Uh, college athletes in my classes all the time, uh, and and many of them uh, are non-revenue sport athletes. And some of the most fascinating conversations that I've had recently in my classes, when we because we, we do we talk explicitly about I'm t- I'm teaching the labor of sport and we're talking about college sport and then of, of course like it intersects with the readings to have a conversation about what people are literally experiencing right there in the moment um, on campus, and uh, we've had some fascinating conversations about the recruiting angle specifically because um, when it comes to recruiting, my understanding is that what 
what it looks like when you're shown the school is a lot different than when you arrive on campus and get to experience the reality. And I think that's an important part of this, right? Because in a sense, there's a con that takes place in college sport and has to because it's based on exploitation, but you need to seduce people into participating. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I think I can draw on like my personal experience um, a lot here because I think that I was, um, I would, I'll just say like I was a bit unhappy whenever I think I finally got to campus. Um, So my first coach at at the University of Texas, and I'll just note right now that um, between my, I had a coaching change between my um, sophomore and junior season. Um, and that, so our head coach changed between my sophomore and junior season. Um, and the assistant coach actually changed, um, after my first semester at Texas. Um, and my, the, the assistant coach in 2012 and the head coach in 2012 were the people who recruited me, um, to Texas. And one, big thing that I personally was looking for in a university. I, you know, loved playing golf. Um, I was, you know, more of a social golfer. So I, you know, loved more like being out there with my, my sister and um, our friends. And I, I was really competitive and like that did drive me, but it wasn't like the fact that I loved golf specifically. It was more like, my competitiveness and the fact that, you know, all of our friends were doing it. Um, So for me, you know, one really important aspect was, you know, the like what academic experience I would be getting at um, whatever school that I chose. Um, So I remember specifically whenever I took my um, visit to UT talking to our first coach about um, how I wanted to be an architecture major. And I had already been speaking with other schools and some coaches were like, you know, I'm not sure that that would work. And, you know, we don't know if, if you'll be able to, you know, pursue that major if you come here. But one thing that I was told um, was that if I went to University of Texas, I would be able to pursue an architecture major. And that wasn't the only thing that made me, you know, initially decide to go to UT. Um, I also looked at the University of Wisconsin. I think um, that coach was my favorite coach out of the whole recruiting process. Um, I think probably his mistake was inviting me to my official visit in February (laughs) in Wisconsin um, because I was immediately scared away um, despite, you know, being treated to like one of the coolest basketball games that season. It was Wisconsin versus Ohio state. Um, But yeah, so I think, you know, I, the recruiting process was really interesting and um, I, yeah, like I specifically wanted to, I looked at, you know, like Tulane university and Wake Forest, you know, you know, schools that um, in my mind had like strong academics. I even, um, talked to the Harvard coach for a while because I was a member of this honor scholar um, junior golf, like in in junior golf, the American Junior Golf Association um, basically awards uh, a number of 
quote unquote, like scholars every year. And I was a member of that. I think that's how I ended up on Harvard Coaches Radar. I'm not really sure. But um, so I even talked to um, him and and I, the thing that really attracted that was really attractive to me about Texas was, you know, this like strong academic school, but also this really strong athletic school. Um, and the fact that it was in the South, you know, I did not think that I could go anywhere where it would potentially snow. Um, so I went to law school in Michigan. Come on. <laughs> and Come on. I, um, I feel like I was very brave to go to law school in Michigan. <laughs> um, <laughs> it snows a lot in Ann Arbor. Yeah. It was, it was very difficult. It was a very difficult first year for me. I got um, teased a lot by my classmates because I started wearing my winter coat in like October. <laughs> and, Sounds like um, me up here in Philly, so I get I get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, Michigan was a little difficult, but yeah, just getting back to recruiting, I, I you know I remember specifically you know talking to the different coaches about how I wanted to pursue this major, and this was kind of I, I don't know if I'll say it promise. It was more of like an assurance that I would be able to do it. Um, so yeah, I committed to Texas. I think a couple of days after that visit, I want to say, or maybe a couple of weeks, not long after that visit. Um, and then I arrived in Texas at Texas in um, January of 2012. And I think I, my eyes were open. <laughs> um, and I learned quickly that, you know, student athletes or college athletes are, not um in in some sports you know can only take classes before like 1 p.m for example um and you know some a lot of classes especially for freshmen are um later in the afternoon um especially those classes that those prerequisite classes um for certain majors um and I remember talking to my coach about that, and she told me that I would not be able to even consider doing an architecture major if I wanted to be able to play with a team. And so it became this thing where I was like, well, I came to school to, you know, both play golf and pursue my education. But now it's like, golf is the thing that is allowing me to pursue my education here. Um, so I couldn't, you know, I had to prioritize that, you know, like that didn't feel like a fight that I could really take on um, without getting into like super specifics. I think that that was something that really destroyed my relationship with that coach. Um, I, you know, there was like no trust there after that and um, things weren't great for me. Luckily for me, she um, retired after my sophomore year and um, I didn't have to, to deal with her much after that but it was it was like a very it was a very difficult and eye-opening experience and I remember my younger sister my sister's two years younger than me I remember like as soon as I got to Texas and like these things started happening I called my parents and I was like okay here is our plan for LaCarba that's my younger sister I was like here's our plan for her um and I just kind of like talked to them about like what was happening you know and I think that she had a much better recruiting experience than I did because, you know, I was there um, and had gone through it and and kind of knew, you know, the right questions to ask and and things to look at the you know assurances to look out for. <laughs> 
Yeah. And so I just have, um, I guess two follow-ups, but I'll start with the first one. This is kind of minor, but just so that kind of listeners like, um, sort of follow what you're saying. So the reason that some of the coaches gave for, uh, you not being able to be an architecture major was because of like the time commitment involved in those classes compared to your practice schedule. Was that, was that what it was about? So um, it was kind of different with different schools that I talked to. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to say that um, a couple of them, they just didn't have an architecture program um, for undergrads. Um, And then um, some of them, it was just like these classes are not held at a time when Mm -hmm. you would be able to take them. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was kind of a mix. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then so so this, I guess... Being told, so then when you got to UT Austin, you were then told like this major is not going to work. Like how, how did that, how did that go down? Yeah. So it was basically, um, I, so my freshman year or my first semester of freshman year, it was, um, it wasn't too difficult because I, so I start, I actually started, um, a semester early. I graduated from high school a bit early. Um, so I did what they call like a, a gray shirt. Um, in that, like, I didn't start my eligibility. Um, you know, I think they do this in football a lot more. It's m- more common in football. Um, but they, I started in January of 2012, and then I wasn't meant to begin my eligibility until the next August. So August of 2012 was like when you know my you know class, quote unquote class, um, was meant to begin. So I took, you know, kind of just like the typical like freshman courses. I think I took like world religion and like courses just to like get me used to being in at school. Um, And then whenever I went to, you know, choose my courses for the next semester, that was kind of when I had this conversation with my academic advisor, who um, is someone who was kind of like my biggest supporter throughout my four years at Texas, um, where, you know, she kind of like told me, she was like, look, your coach said that y'all cannot take classes past 1 p.m. And then I remember like having this conversation with our coach and her kind of telling me that, um, that like, there's just no way that I can take classes in the afternoon because um, those are that, that time needed to be you know, preserved for practice. Um, And in golf, which I think is different from other sports, we have what's called qualifying. So um, we kind of have to play together um, because, you know, just conditions change and, um, you know, just like kind of golf tradition. It's, you know, everyone in the tournament kind of play like starts around the same time. Um, So at I think that time there were 10 of us on the team. So all 10 of us would go out um, in groups of three and, and play um, qualifying in the afternoons for our tournaments. Um, that's how we would get chosen for tournaments. So um, we kind of all had to, even though golf is an individual sport, which you would think would allow us to kind of take the classes that we wanted, we all kind of had to be on the same schedule because of that. Wow, that must have been like such a blow. I mean, and of course, it makes sense why you would be so motivated to make sure that your sister had a very different experience. But I, I can't imagine like how frustrating that must have felt for you when you when you found that out from your academic yeah, it advisor. Was, it was it was really disappointing, I think, because I I had this like idea of what I wanted to do in my mind, um, 
And I got to school and it was like very different. And then I was like, wait, I, (laughs) you know, like I came to Texas because of, you know, partly because of this academic program. Um, Mm -hmm. And now I have to like decide like what I'm interested in. I just didn't know at that, at that time. I was like, I don't know what I want to do besides architecture, you know, like I want it to be architecture. Um, And my academic advisor, like I said, she was wonderful. And um, she helped me explore other majors. I ended up in public relations, which I also really loved. But, um, you know, it, w- it, was a, it was a difficult learning lesson um, about kind of like rec- what you're told in the recruiting process versus what happens um, when you arrive. Yeah, man. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, And so to kind of continue on this train of thought, um, to what extent do you think um, that college athletes get the same educational experience as other students? Um, Do you think that this varies based on sport and sort of what did you encounter in college? Oh, yeah. Um, So I don't think that college athletes get the same educational experiences as other students at all. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know that it necessarily, I'm not sure that it changes between, um, sport. I think it might change more between, um, whether you're a walk-on on a particular team versus a scholarship athlete or an athlete who, um, is more act, has a more active role, um, in competition. Um, I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, kind of my, they're, they're just like different levels, I think. So as a golfer, you know, we were not, I was not like, nobody cared about me. Like they cared about the football players, right? Like on campus, you know, like professors didn't care that I was a golfer and, um, you know, st- other students didn't care. So I think like I didn't have some of the pressures that like maybe football or basketball players have in that regard. but. I traveled way more than I think most other athletes did. Um, When we traveled for golf tournaments, we would be gone for anywhere between three to five days at a time. Um, Mm -hmm. And we played, I think, a minimum of four golf tournaments each semester. Um, And I, I don't, I didn't travel to every single tournament, but I did travel to the vast majority. So um, you know, I was gone a, a lot. Um, and, and it was very difficult to, um, you know, kind of stay on top of my work and catch up. I think I did a pretty good job of it. But um, it was it was hard, you know, we would, for example, leave for a tournament on Wednesday, um, play a practice round on Thursday, play the tournament Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and leave um, that tournament on Sunday and have class, you know, on Monday morning. Um, and we would make, sometimes we would arrive, you know, at maybe 9 PM, which is like not bad, but sometimes we would arrive at 2 AM, you know, and I'd have to be at class the next morning. So, um, you know, that was difficult. I think another thing that makes it very difficult is, um, there were a few times where I was told that I would not be allowed to take a class because, um, of my status as an athlete. Um, you know, at the beginning of each semester, we're told to give our, our schedules to our professors. Um, at least two times that I can remember, I gave 
my schedule to a professor for a class. Both of these classes were like required prerequisite classes. Um, I gave my um, schedule to my professor and he was like, you're going to miss too many classes. You can't be in this class. And I think that's fair. But I think part of the problem for me is that I had friends who were not athletes who just skipped those classes and, um, you know, sometimes skipped more classes than I would have missed. And they were allowed to be enrolled in those classes and they did fine. Um, So I think that was like kind of difficult was getting used to, um, you know, being told that I couldn't um, do things. And then I think one thing, another thing that um, is very different um, that someone y'all had earlier on um, in the podcast and this year talk about, um, I think it was one of the men from the University of Michigan talked about um, kind of like energy preservation and yes, um, yes. yeah. And Hunter, Hunter Reynolds, that's right. Exactly. Yes, Hunter, yeah. So I think like he, like to me, that is like a very huge aspect of being a college athlete is just, you know, I can kind of run through kind of like what a day was like um, if you'd like later on, but um, it, oh, yes, absolutely. It, yeah. Um, but it, 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 it was exhausting. And, you know, we would like, there are a lot of like athletic related activities that um, I did throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, I still had to like do my studying, you know? Um, so, you know, normal students don't deal with that. Even students, you know, who are on other scholarships, right? Like you see maybe a student who's on an engineering scholarship or a student who's on a dance scholarship, like, those students still have to do things to keep those scholarships, but those things pertain to their degrees. Whereas like with me on my golf scholarship, I like nothing that I did as a golfer helped me get my degree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was kind of, I was juggling, you know, the life of a full-time student with the life of a full-time athlete. Um, And, and that was, very difficult and different. And kind of just the last thing that I'll say um, about this is there are a lot of missed opportunities for, for college athletes, you know, um, in my, and I'll just speak to my experience. Um, I believe it was my, yeah, my junior year of um, college, I was accepted into this program in the Moody College of Communications, um, Mm. this Texas media program. It's, um, you know, kind of it's like a huge honor for um, public relations and advertising majors at the University of Texas. I think they take about 10 or 12 of us. And um, I had to, in order to fulfill my requirements for this Texas media program, I would have had to take a class in the afternoon. Um, I called my coach at the time about it. This was our new coach. And I told him, you know, the exciting news. And he was just like, Tez, you have to make a decision. And, you know, he, and I, I think I have a good relationship with this coach still, but um, it was, it was very difficult. He was like, Tez, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Like you have to make up the decision. Like, you know, that if you do this, like you might not be able to play. Um, like maybe you will, maybe you won't. Um, but he was like, this is a decision that you have to make. And I was like, well, golf is in my mind, you know, like after I had that conversation with him, I was like, well, golf is what's allowing me to go to school, you know, for, for free or at cost or whatever it was. And, you know, I couldn't just 
say, well, okay, I'm not going to play golf for a semester, you know, like, even if he didn't tell me that I couldn't do the program, you know, like that was like, in my mind, you know, what I had to do. And I think, I don't know if I talk to him about it now, like, would he say that, like, he wouldn't have held it against me? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But like, from the perspective of a 20 year old, you know, who has a scholarship and who, you know, is trying to to get through school for as, you know, efficiently as possible, it, it's really hard to say like, okay, I'm just gonna like, not do this thing that is allowing me to, um, to, to get through school. So I had to turn it down. And it was really, it was really sad and, and, and heartbreaking, you know, like, I watched my friends in public in our public relations and advertising major, um, go to New York City at the end of the semester and present to American Express. And I was just like, cool, <laughs> you know, um, and whatever, like, I, I got to play, you know, I played, I played the whole season. And like, it, it, it was also fun. And, and like, that was a different experience. But wouldn't it have been so cool to do both, you know? Um, but yeah, so, you know, like my classmates didn't have to make a decision like that. So yeah, I would say that there's just no way that the, the, the experience is, is similar at all. <laughs> yes. No, listen, there's, there are so many themes that you kind of illuminated that we, we come back to when we're talking about college sport in this show. And I, I just want to kind of highlight a few of them, which you have, you know, so richly exemplified through your kind of concrete experiences. One of them is, you know, and this is the one that I think gets talked about the most, the fact that there is a structural way in which college athletes are denied the compensation that they are promised. The compensation that you are promised is education. And yet, because of the organization of your schedule, right? If we, even if we want to talk about the least insidious way of understanding this, it's literally just, yeah, well, we have practice in the morning. Well, yeah, no, I mean, we, we, you have to be away. You have to miss Wednesday through Friday. So you're going to miss a lot of classes. And like the compensation is actually getting to be in that classroom. So just by the, the very fact that you aren't in that classroom because you're traveling, like, yes, you can pull a decent grade in the course or a great grade. Yes, you can read the textbook or whatever the readings are, but that's actually not what you're supposed to be compensated with. You're supposed to be compensated with the entire class experience and you just aren't getting it and you can't get it. And that's still if the school is trying to do it right. They're not trying to cheat you. They're not. No, it's just not possible to get the full educational experience with this level of academic, excuse me, athletic commitment. Right. So I think that that's really important to just highlight. That's part of it. And by the way, what you were, I think, you know, Johanna's question got at this. It did not sound to me like what you faced was necessarily academic clustering. But I think it's also worth bringing up that point for people that are unfamiliar. One thing we see, especially in revenue sports, is that athletes are steered away from specific majors and programs of study because their faculty, because the athletic department is telling them that's too demanding quote unquote, of course, that's too rigorous. That's going to take too much of your time. And we, as the athletic department, aren't interested in you doing that. And that, by the way, that's, that's not it. Like that's barely, I don't even want to put that in the insidious category. That's part of this. That's a structural constraint because almost no players who are not walk-ons, as you rightly pointed out, uh, are permitted to go into those kind of programs um, by especially the high revenue sports. So that's another part of the equation. All right, fine. But then you are also highlighting something that makes my stomach churn. Honestly, because like, yeah, we get to the, like, as far as I'm concerned, I I view these athletic departments as just, you know, they're just, they operate 
like any capitalist organization, uh, even though like it's obviously complicated by their so-called non-revenue status or whatever else, but like they're there to squeeze revenue out of people, performance out of people. It makes sense that they're going to limit your academic time, maximize your athletic time, et cetera, right? I mean, I don't like it. I'm going to critique it all day long, but I get the logic. But then when we start talking about the academic side and the fact that you have faculty members who are employed by the university to teach you, and they're faced with an individual who has exceptional constraints placed upon you by the university, not your own choice. And they think that the appropriate response to that is to tell you that they can't, you can't take the class because you're not committed enough. That's bullshit. And it's sickening. And it's the reason why we don't have solidarity between athletes and faculty on our campuses. Um, it's a cr- that's a crisis, uh, and faculty have to look themselves in the like the faculty have to look in the mirror and really think about how much they are complicit in this system because there is no excuse for that. A college athlete is trying their best, and it's your job to try your best as a faculty member to give them the experience that you can. You can't overcome the constraints either, but you can work hand in hand. When they bring you that sheet, that's like, let's have a conversation to do the best we can with this. There's no way, there's no universe in my mind that a single faculty member can legitimately tell a college athlete who brings that sheet, and I know the sheet you're talking about, who brings that sheet mm-hmm. and says, you, there's no legitimate universe in which that faculty member says, no, you can't take my course. That's an outrage. Um, so there you go. I'm on my soapbox a little bit. Um, but now I'm going to go back. Yeah, go ahead, Johanna. Yeah, I have something to add. So um, I thought your example at the very end about the, uh, the, the academic program and the communications department, um, I thought that was so interesting, um, the, the coach's response. And that, you know, by saying, you know, it is your choice. But then you're saying that it's not it's not really your choice, right? It's, it's a choiceless choice. And that if, if you were to have taken the necessary class for this program opportunity, then that very well could have impacted your um, your ability to compete. And that is what your scholarship is contingent on, right? In order to maintain that scholarship, in order to continue going to school in the same capacity you were going, you needed to go to practice. Um, so I just also wanted to highlight that. And also in light of everything that's going on with college sports right now, being coerced to return to the field and everyone saying, oh, well, they have a choice. They can opt out, but like they don't. And athletes are telling us that it's not really a choice, um, unless, you know, they have the ability to like go into the draft the next year or whatever. And they know that they have a little bit of security going forward. So I just, I just really wanted to highlight that because I thought that was a very sad, but also perfect example of some of the stuff we've been seeing going on right now. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for interjecting with that because that's critical. Um, Totally. So then let's, let's, so where we want to go next and you were taking us here um, is that day in the life piece. And you're giving us a, you've already given us a a really rich portrait of a lot of it because like you, you've kind of shown us how the academic stuff um, fits into that day in the life. But what we actually haven't heard as much about yet is the athletic, right? And the balance that you kind of have to try to manage. I think it's like an impossible balance, really. Uh, and I, I, I said this before, uh, I think on that show with, um, with Hunter and Benjamin, but um, there's that unbelievable ad, right, that the NCAA put out, A Day in the yeah. Life of the so-called Student Athlete. <laughs> oh and God, I just, yes. I have to ask everyone about this because like, <laughs> we have to tell the truth about what that day in the life actually is. So please do that for us. I think when that ad came out, I... I, I don't remember I don't remember if I tweeted about it, but I definitely like texted my sister and I was just like, 
like that is ridiculous like I just remember texting like a bunch of friends and being like what the hell um (laughs) but yeah so I think I can kind of talk so I'll talk first like about the day in the life when I was a freshman and then I'll just like speak um a little bit about how that changed afterwards so um at Texas and I think at most um uh universities, um, definitely at most power five schools, if not all of them, um, freshmen are required to do about at least 10, um, hours of, you know, quote unquote study hall. Um, so that's when you come in and you work with a mentor and, or a tutor, um, just to kind of like, you know, the mentor is someone who's supposed to teach you how to quote unquote do college. And, you know, the tutors are, you know, class specific. So um, I actually worked as a mentor at the University of Michigan um, the last couple of years. And I worked for two football, I worked with two football players who are um, wonderful. um, And I root really um, a lot for but um, yeah, so going back to to just like my schedule, my day in the life. um, So my freshman year, I want to say that our workouts were at about 6.30 or 7. I, um, and so I, w- I would be up, you know, depending on, you know, like where I was. Um, you know, my freshman year, I lived in the dorms. So it was about like a three-minute walk from um, the stadium, so um, which is where we did workouts. Um, and so I, I would just like kind of be up, you know, maybe – 20 minutes before, um, kind of like roll out of bed and like walk to the, to the gym. Um, and we would work out for about an hour. Um, my freshman year, I had class at like right at eight o'clock. So I didn't have time to shower or anything. And I just like walked, um, across campus, you know, really sore. So I walked pretty slowly, um, and like sat in class in my first class at about from like eight to nine or whatever it was. And then, I would walk across campus again for, um, depending on the day, you know, um, for class again. Um, If it was, you know, whatever day it was, like if I didn't have class, like I might go back to my dorm and like shower and try to take a quick nap or something. Um, Sometimes I ended up in the student activity center at UT and I would take a nap there. They had like really huge lounge chairs and I would just like take a nap there. Um, And then our our athletic dining opened at 10:30 every morning um Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays. I think Sunday it opened a little later and it wasn't open on Saturday. Um and so yeah, for, I would go to athletic dining around like 11:30 I think. Um depending on when I got out of class again. Um and usually I would eat in athletic dining with like some of my teammates or um, freshman year, I lived with a tennis player, so I might eat with her or, um, we were really close to the swim team. So I might eat with some of them. Um, and then I would go back to the dorm and change for practice. Um, my freshman year, I didn't have a car. So I, um, or that first semester that I was at UT, I didn't have a car. So I would, um, catch a ride with a teammate. Um, our golf course was about 30 to 45 minutes away, depending on traffic. So, um, I would, we would all drive out to the golf course. I think we'd be at the golf course by 2 PM, um, every day. Um, and then, um, with golf, we didn't really do like quote unquote team practices unless we were qualifying. So I would kind of do the practices at my, 
um, personal individual coach would give me. Um, and so we would be at practice. I think most of the time we would be there past six 30, just because the traffic in Austin kind of died down by then, um, on the way back into town. So, um, I think our coach though, you know, there's this NCAA, there's a 20 hour rule with respect to, um, athletic related activities. So I think our coach would like leave after like two and a half hours or three hours of practice. She would like go home so that, you know, practice was like no longer official practice. Um, and yeah, so we would be out there until probably, I want to say like six or six thirty. sometimes later, depending on like whether we were playing, um, you know, if we're playing a full round of golf, the NCAA has this weird rule with respect to golf. I don't know if it's still a rule, but it was at the time that any round of golf is three hours, no matter how long it takes, it counts as three hours. So if like we were at the golf course for five hours, um, like if the round was five hours, then like it only counted as three hours. So um, (laughs) that was, uh, yeah, that was very interesting. But um, yeah, so we, um, would, you know, finish around 6.30 or so. Um, my freshman year, our study hall was in the evenings. So I would rush back to camp- campus with one of my teammates and we would go to study hall from 7.30 to 9.30. Um, some days we would um, have time to like stop by the dorm, which is where we got our food in the evenings and pick up food. Um, some days we'd didn't have time and we had to like either go across campus to like the other dining hall that was open really late or we would just like honestly there were days where I was like too tired to do that so I would just like go to bed I would like eat a power bar and go to bed um but yeah so that was kind of like the normal day as a freshman um the only thing that really changed after my freshman year is um like my grades were pretty good. So I didn't have mandatory study hall anymore. Um, I still was, you know, one of, I think I spent still spent kind of the most time um, in study hall. Um, but I, I think my, it was in 2014. So just at, like towards the end of my sophomore, or after my sophomore year, um, you know, Shabazz Napier, he kind of like during March Madness, like, talked about how he sometimes went to bed hungry, which I think was very true for a lot of um, college athletes. Um, And so like that next year, the NCAA passed a rule that allowed our schools to feed us um, more often. So um, after that, we started eating dinner at the golf course, which was amazing. Um, It was really great that Texas uh, like allowed that, allowed us to have that opportunity because then, um, you know, sometimes we would stay out there at the golf course a little later, but we would get our food and like, didn't have to worry about like running around campus to get food um, in the evenings. Um, so that was pretty wonderful. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think um, not much changed in my schedule um, for me personally, because like I said, I spent a, um, a bit more time in um, study hall. Um, still as, you know, an upperclassman, um, I might, I'll say that maybe I like, I spent less time with tutors, but, um, I still, you know, kind of was like in there regularly. So I think my day started, you know, just kind of to like wrap this up. My day started at about 6am and then, um, they probably ended at about 
10 p.m. Um, and right, I should say I left campus at about 10 p.m. because then I still had to like go back to my apartment and like shower and get ready for bed and do all of that fun stuff or, you know, like socialize, right? Like college students want to socialize. So, you know, some days I would just want to socialize with my friends. Um, so yeah, like I, um, but, but there was really never any downtime, um, you know, from 6am to we'll say like 10pm. Wow, you love to answer so many questions. Um, thank you so much. Uh, this is good. Thank you so much. And I, I just want to make sure that I understand something because my jaw was just like on the floor. Um, okay, so I'm going to repeat what I think you said, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so, in order to officially stay within the 20 hour per week rule for the NCAA, your coach would go home earlier than everybody else even though you would still practice so that like officially technically like practice was over because the coach was going home. Is that correct? Um, so I like, there was never any, like there was never any I'm going home because we need to stay within this role, but I suspect that, uh, and it was, and it, I think it probably changed between the, the coaches that we had, but yeah, we, um, I think, the thing that's I think very interesting and different about golf is like that you can do it on your own and like people are left um to to kind of like play on their own so yeah often like you know our coaches might like I would go out with a teammate and play nine holes or play 18 holes and like we would get back and our coaches like nowhere to be seen um (laughs) uh because you know we like maybe started at two o'clock but we didn't finish till 6 30 or whatever um so yeah like I think I don't know if it was necessarily because um they wanted to stay within this 20 hour rule but like it was you know like coaches would often like just leave and and kind of like leave us to do our own thing yeah for sure yeah I mean this we just we're like we're broken records here but I, maybe I just been on Twitter too much to be honest that's that's probably where this is coming from but the the constant chorus of like oh people are making choices and there are rules and it's all fair because of this like it just masks the reality that every rule has a loophole right every choice is constrained by myriad structural factors beyond the control of the athlete like it nothing is like what it seems so the NCA can always make this case and the college sport you know NCA is shorthand for that um you know, it can have this veneer of being this like fair, just system that that its supporters can rally behind and make a case for. But when you actually bother to take a look at what people are doing, <laughs> who are supposedly following like something like a twenty-hour rule, it just looks nothing like it. And if you're not actually held to twenty hours, if you're supposedly playing three hours of golf, but actually you're playing four and a half or five hours, and you're doing that over and over again, right? Like, you don't actually get extra hours in your day to make up for that. That's right. your life that gets squeezed. That's the school that gets squeezed. And that means you're not getting the compensation that you're being promised. And I like to come around to that because like, that's the actual justification for this whole model, that you're getting this great thing. But if you're not getting this great thing precisely because you're doing more work <laughs> than, it's, than you're supposed to be doing, then it's completely the reverse of the way it's sold to everybody. Um, so you know, I just wanted to highlight that again. But the other thing you mentioned, which was really interesting to us, is this experience of mentoring at Michigan. 
So you've seen like mm. you've seen a lot of different angles in other yeah. words, on, on this mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, any insights you have as a product of that? Not because, and I, I want to be really clear about this. I'm not like digging for oh, like how is Michigan breaking the rules? Yeah. I, I think that the UNC thing is not the. I've said this many times. I don't think that like fundamental, conscious, deliberate corruption is the main issue with college sport. The corruption is in the fact that the system just doesn't work. It's not possible to get an education when the system is working right. Right. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all. Like I come from Duke, like Duke, everything seems above board to me. And I'm sure that everything seems above board at Michigan too, but I'm curious kind of like from your angle there though, as part of that sort of machine, what above board still looks like, right? Like what you saw for those athletes. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I completely agree with that. Like everything at UT, I would say that like everything was in within the rules. Right. So, um, you know, our three hour round of golf, like that is an NCAA rule, you know? So like that is within the rules that, you know, like our, um, at, um, I think there's like this random rule that I didn't know about, um, that we were informed about, um, I think my sophomore year, maybe, um, how like schools who go to Hawaii, it like doesn't count against our competition days because like, it's hard for Hawaii, like schools in Hawaii to come to the mainland. Um, so that's like also very interesting, right? So it's like, technically we have, I don't know, X number of competition days, but like, we don't really, because if you go play in Hawaii, if your school can afford to send you there, like those are extra competition days that you get that don't count against like this rule of, you know, these 24 whatever days it is. Um, anyway, sorry, that's an aside, um, from the university of Michigan, you know, my experience as a mentor. Yeah. Like everything was definitely above board. Like it was very interesting to me because as a as a college athlete you know we didn't really talk so much about like the way I mean we everyone we had compliance I think every semester we you know had to walk into our compliance officer's office and you know sit through a two-hour presentation or whatever about the ways in which we could potentially break the rules and like what to do if we thought that we might break a rule or et cetera et cetera um in on at Michigan on the other side of it it was very interesting because it was like very it was much more like they cared so much more about the rules like every I want to say like every week I got an email about like making sure that I did x y and z thing you know like they were so meticulous about um the reports that I wrote when we went online you know like every single like zoom conversation I had with my students was recorded and like submitted and um you know, there were very specific rules about like not touching, you know, laptops and like I wasn't supposed to write on the whiteboard and, you know, all of these things. Um, so I think that's one aspect that's 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 very different um, with respect to like supporting the students and like how I thought that they were. I mean, I think Michigan and Texas are schools that are very well resourced. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I think that you know, the student, the students at those schools or the athletes at those at like Texas and the athletes at Michigan have much more of the, you know, a a more normal college experience than maybe athletes at other schools, because we are able to, you know, get more tutoring and, and, um, support. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, one thing that, that, 
to me is very difficult. I think the most difficult thing and like just going back to like what Hunter said in that other episode is just like energy, like how much energy output um, college athletes are, you know, forced to, to use. Um, it, it's really hard. You know, I saw, um, you know, whenever I was at Texas, like one thing that, that was difficult for me and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not, I don't want to talk too much about like being at Michigan, not because I think that they like broke any rules. I don't think that they did, but like, I, I don't want to share other people's stories, but kind of without their permission. Um, but like for me at Texas, um, I, it, it was very, I was, I was always exhausted, you know, like I would go to class and I was exhausted. And like, I remember I fell asleep. There was like one class that was like after it was in the afternoon. Um, there was one semester where, where, um, a teammate and I were able to take afternoon classes because there was just literally no other way we would be able to to graduate without doing that. Um, and I remember like wanting to fall asleep in that class like every day because it was right after lunch and like we had played. You like we went to workouts and then we played golf first thing in the morning and then we had to go to class. Um, so I think like that is is something I remember my freshman year. This was like before I even like was really competing um I took a three-hour evening class and I like it was from like 6 30 to 9 30 and there was a break at about 7 30 or 8 and I remember I skipped the class after eight o'clock and a class checker came in and um that evening like I got a text message like where were you and like where were you today and I was like I went home after class because I was so tired like I couldn't do it um and I think that's like one thing that is you know the most difficult for, um, for college athletes is just like dealing with, you know, like having such a full day and then like having to do like stay on top of our, our schoolwork afterwards. So, um, and, and I would say like, that's probably something that I noticed at Michigan too, um, was just like it, you know, both of these schools are very demanding, um, no matter, you know, like what your major is. And, um, I thought that, you know, both athletic departments, And like the academic staff in those departments did, you know, the best that they could with respect to, um, you know, making sure that athletes were supported. Um, But I, you know, in in my mind, like to me, at least, it was very difficult to, you know, stay focused, you know, at at the end of the day when you've had, you know, such a full day. And and, um, I don't know if this is true. I remember like one. I'm sure it's much more difficult for football players than for golfers because, um, you know, I think my sophomore year, um, a teammate and I took two football players out to the golf, to our home golf course and we played with them. And, and I'll never forget. One of them was like, this is all y'all do every day is just like play nine (laughs) holes. He was like, every day I feel like I've been hit by a bus and this is all you do. So like, I can imagine like it's way more difficult for them than, you know, for, for someone like me who was just a golfer. (laughs) Totally. And I just, I just want to super quickly highlight, because I think you picked up on what was also for me, one of the absolute most striking things that Hunter had said, um, because it had been what I have observed from the other side, right? As a as a teacher in one of those classrooms, a thing that I feel no one talks about. Like that's just not part of the general discourse about college sport, is that energy management piece. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like there's just this this yeah. seeming like it's like if you can just 
time it well enough, or as you're pointing out, like if you can provide enough resources, right? Like enough tutors and these schools like Michigan and Texas and Duke, like they have the resources and I'm not saying they're cheating the athletes of those resources. Like, and I'm not saying that the tutors like you are not trying to help. I think that all of that is happening, but like, you just can't do all these things in one day. You just can't do it. It's too hard. It's too tiring. It's exhausting. And so, you know, fine. The athlete just has to make choices like any student does, by the way, because most students are pretty worn out. The athlete has to make choices about how to, to spend that energy. But like, could the could faculty just pay attention to that a little bit? Perhaps <laughs> just pay attention and think like, what is this other person going through? As opposed to be like, oh, you're, you're not respecting my brilliant intervention in the literature that I'm sharing with you today in my introductory class. Um, no, like th- there's no way that person is going to be alert and it's your job to give them something anyway. It's not your job to hold them accountable like they're somehow cheating you um, off the soapbox again. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely, that's right. Is um, I think one thing that's very difficult is like for, for, for athletes is, um, you know, getting a lot of support internally um, from the athletic department and then, um, you know, turning around and like going out into the, to the greater university community. And sometimes, you know, not all the times I, I took a class with um, professor Lewis Harrison at, at uh, university of Texas. I think he's in the school of education. He taught African-Americans in sport and he was extremely welcoming to athletes. I mean, obviously like we, you know, like he kind of just studies athletics. Right. But um you know, not all professors are like that. So um, I think it would be, you know, um, help alleviate some of the, the burden that athletes have if, if, you know, professors were more welcoming, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, just to kind of continue with this line of thought, I mean, it's not even like it takes a leap of the imagination for professors to connect the dots that the issue is not, is obviously not the athletes, right? Like, it, that's, that's not they're not the ones who have the issue. It's the structure. Um, mm-hmm. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, I've certainly known professors when, when I was a college athlete and, and, you know, with colleagues, other schools that, that, that are not as, as not, are not as welcoming. Um, and I, you know, it just, it just makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and so we, we've talked a little bit about the sort of next topic a little bit, and you did this yourself when you were kind of comparing uh, some sort of your schedule and your practice um, sort of intensity to that of a, of a football player. Um, and sort of right now, there's a lot of um, debate about the extent to which revenue and non-revenue college sports are exploitative. Now, we would love to hear you break down um, how you feel about this issue. So where is exploitation to be found in college sport? And how have your experiences informed your thinking on the subject? Oh, yeah. So, um, man. So I, yeah, I think I first want to be like really clear that I don't think that, um, you know, women's golfers or non-revenue athletes are exploited in the same way that college football or basketball, men's basketball players are. but that being said, I, I think one thing that I really want to highlight is the um, importance of Olympic sports to, you know, this NCAA college athletic model, right? So um, I remember when I was at Texas, and I'm sure schools still do this, um, in 2012, after the London Olympics, 
uh, Texas released, you know, pro- like a press release or something about how if we were um, our own country, we would have, you know, finished top 20 in the medal counts at the Olympics. And I know that like, I had a friend who was at UCLA, I think at the time, and I know that UCLA did it and Stanford did it. And I want to say like University of Florida did it and mm-hmm. probably Michigan, like all of these schools like still, you know, love to, um, to profit off of their, you know, maybe their like non-revenue, but Olympic sports. So um, I think that it would be a mistake to say that just because, you know, Olympic sports don't generate, you know, revenue in the same way that basketball or football do that um, they are not still being, you know, used in this model. Um, That being said, like, I think, you know, my experiences have um, kind of, I, I think, you know, just, just like kind of the ways that I, I felt, um, you know, often like I was not treated fairly or I wasn't, um, you know, given, you know, the full story. So I keep going back to like kind of recruiting for me was like the big, like eye-opening thing. Um, I, I think that, that and then just like, you know, small things here or there, like hearing how my friends were treated at their schools, you know, I had, um, as a golfer, like I had a lot of friends at, at, you know, different schools, I had friends at schools in Texas, I had friends at schools out of outside of Texas, um, mostly in power five, um, all in power five conferences, and like just hearing about their stories, um, and, and the ways in which the system made it very difficult for them to, to, um, you know, kind of uh, pursue the things that they wanted. Um, I think that shapes, you know, how I kind of approach this, um, you know, college athletics. And um, now um, I'll say like I considered transferring after my freshman year. Um, And one thing that, you know, one reason why I didn't um, was because I thought that I might have to sit out a year because, you know, I considered maybe going to another school in the Big 12. Um, and I didn't want to lose that year of eligibility, you know? So, like, that's a really huge thing. And I'm, I'm you know, glad that, you know, for non-revenue sport, I mean, if you don't, you know, transfer in conference, um, you don't lose that year of eligibility. So, um, I think, you know, that's, good if for people who you know maybe considered transferring out of conference or whatever but you know that's still a restriction that's still very difficult um you know and I knew many of my my friends who who transferred um my junior year we had two women transfer into the Texas golf program that I brought from different schools um and they they both came from the SEC actually and you know, when they were considering transferring, they were like, I can't stay in the SEC. Like, I don't want to lose a year of eligibility. I was like, come to Texas. It's great. Um, you know, like it, it works out great. Like you don't have to lose a year of eligibility. You get to be with me. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I think, you know, just thinking about like the ways that we were restricted and like, we weren't even, you know, the quote unquote, like revenue generating sports, um, or the quote unquote important sports, I mean, um, 
I think really just like has shaped, you know, the way in which I um, think about, you know, the movement now and, and the way in which the NCAA treats um, college athletes generally. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That was terrific. Um, and it kind of, it brings us now to this other aspect of exploitation that we haven't delved uh, since the beginning of our conversation, we haven't really delved into. Um, and that is the place of racism in this whole system. So as we mentioned before, at the very beginning, you were the first black member of the women's golf team at UT. Mm-hmm. So the question is, and it's obviously, it's a hugely loaded question in terms of like unpacking um, these types of experiences, but um, how significant a factor was racism in your experience and how reflective do you feel like your experiences were um, with respect to what has been called like the new plantation dynamics of college sport in the United States. And, you know, that's often talked about in the context of the the sort of revenue sport situation. Um, But, you know, like these institutions, like the new plantation dynamic um, really shapes the experience of everyone on campus in various ways, uh, connected ways. So uh, we'd really appreciate it if you could kind of just speak to speak to this. Yeah. So I think, Um, two things. So one is um, just, so first I'll talk about like kind of this quote new plantation dynamic um, overall. Um, I think I didn't really feel that I was in the place that like, I think mostly football players and basketball players feel. So I didn't feel like my labor was like being used in that way. but I will say that that I definitely like saw that like that for what it was. Um, I saw, you know, like I would go to football games and hear, you know, students. I sat in the student section at Texas. Um, I would hear students like love, you know, the men that were on the field um, during the game and during one game. And then the next game, like students were yelling N word, N word, N word, like, you know, everywhere. Um, so I think, you know, like that to me was, um, like, I think I really saw like, you know, kind of the, the, the situation, the structure, like for what it was, um, as kind of like an outsider from that perspective. Um, and that's actually why I like whenever I went to Michigan, I really wanted to work as a mentor in the athletic department because I felt like, um, you know, I had a very unique experience as a as a former college athlete um, at a large university. And I wanted to be able to kind of like share some of my experiences with the um, students that I worked with um, that I knew were going to be, you know, primarily black students and you know all of the students that I worked with were black students um and I and I just like wanted to kind of like be you know I had a really great relationship with my mentor at Texas and I like kind of wanted to just be that person for the 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 athletes that I worked with um who were in a couple of different sports um and then just like going talking about like I'm sorry, actually, could you repeat? What was your first point? I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, yeah, not at all. The, the first point, so you've been, you've been doing an amazing job of kind of to try to speak to the new plantation dynamics in general, right? Yeah. Uh, and what you've observed, and it's harrowing, frankly, uh, what you've described. Um, 
But then we also wanted to talk about some of the experiences you've had um, oh, yes. because you, you're, I mean, in this like deeply white sport uh, in the South, um, what you had to go through kind of as part of your experience. Yes. Yes. So, um, right. I, so I actually chose, uh, you know, going back to one of the other reasons why I chose the university of Texas, I grew up in a small town um, that is still pretty segregated. Um, and um, I, when I, you know, growing up, you know, Texas football is a huge thing. Um, but also, you know, the one thing that I heard from all of my friends' parents was like, that my friends were not going to be allowed to go to UT because it was like so liberal. And I was like, great, that's where I'm going. Like, I'm going to go to this like liberal haven and they're going to treat me well, like as this black girl, like it'll be wonderful. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, like that was, you know, another reason why, you know, Austin is considered, you know, to be this like, you know, liberal place in Texas. Um, and I think that was, you know, g- getting to UT and, and kind of like experiencing, like, you know, first, like seeing kind of those, that dynamic at football games, but then like, you know, seeing at first it was just like small things, you know, telling, you know, whenever I met other athletes, like telling them that I was a golfer and they were like, what, you know, like that's not really, you know, racist, but it's kind of a microaggression, you know? Um, yeah. And, and people are, are, you know, in disbelief that, like you could be a black golfer. Um, so that was like one thing that was very difficult. And, um, you know, just like showing up to our golf courses sometimes and like people doing double takes um, of me or like, you know, there were some comments that, you know, were made like about, you know, if a teammate and I were like wearing the, I remember like a teammate and I were wearing almost the exact same thing. And like, somehow like what I was wearing was inappropriate because of like my body shape, you know? Um, I, you know, that was like kind of difficult because, you know, from a young age, like I was always just like, I have a bigger chest. I, you know, like I, like, it just is what it is. (laughs) Um, and so it's like very hard to, um, to, I think like deal with, um, kind of like those, those comments and, and microaggressions. And then I want to say my I don't remember if it was my junior or senior year, but um, I was out on the golf course with a teammate and a high school student left a scorecard in the fairway with the N word. And that was, you know, very jarring. Um, And like kind of without going into too much detail of like the whole experience, you know, there was, you know, some conversation with my coaches and um, I didn't really feel like I was, you know, seen or appreciated. You know, one of them basically told me that I just like needed to get over it. Um, and um, I spoke with another one, um, my my head coach um, um, afterwards. And, and there was like some conversation with the student that left the scorecard and, you know, they got us in a room together and he apologized and, I believe he got kicked off the team. I'm not for, for at least the rest of the season. I don't know if it was like, you know, forever, whatever it was, but um, like, you know, there was maybe there were like some repercussions for his actions and um, yeah. So I, I didn't really hear much about it after that. I will say that um, kind of when um, 
after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, um, my head coach called me um, because, um, you know, the University of Texas athletics department was was going to have some conversation with respect to race. And as the only, I guess, black um, woman golfer who has ever played for um, Texas women's golf, I um, was I guess, the natural phone call. Um, and he did tell me that he had a conversation with that kid's dad at the time. Um, I, I think in my mind, like that's nice to hear now, but like as a 20 year old who is, you know, one of the only black people at this club um, and who gets called this like really horrendous name. I think it's something that would have been nice to hear at the time that like my coaches had my back um, if they in fact did, um, because it did not feel like that at the time. And it was, it was very, you know, degrading and upsetting. And um, I think, you know, that was something that was really difficult for me. And I don't know how, how many people knew about it um, at the university. I don't know if, if my coaches told our athletic directors or anything like that, but um, yeah, that was, you know, that was really difficult because, you know, like I said, I, I went to Austin to um, get away from, you know, this small town that I felt was, was pretty segregated and, and fairly racist. and kind of ended up back in this it it was a big lesson for me because now I know that like liberal does not mean anti-racist right but um at the time you know like as a seven as a 16 year old making college decisions I was like that's where I need to go um so yeah it, it, it was difficult and and you know like racism in in is everywhere in golf you know um so um, even now, I think I, I struggle with it um, a lot because golf has still not really had, you know, its reckoning with with race. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, thank you for like de- kind of detailing us, detailing that for us. Um, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, at like sort of different phases of your life when you're young and you're sort of still figuring out what does it mean to be liberal, but also what does it mean to be liberal, but also, you know, racist versus anti-racist, right? I mean, it, that's must've just been such a, such a, it's just an ordeal to have to navigate. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, one topic that we obviously are all talking about right now is about athlete health. And we talked about it in different ways. Um, but now we'd really like to hear your views on the current movement to organize athletes during the pandemic. Um, and sort of what they've been subjected to this summer. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that bothers me the most, I think, with respect to the pandemic, is just, or and and with respect to 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 kind of how athletes have been treated at this time, is kind of just like the the obvious, and and y'all have talked about this a lot on Twitter, um, just like how the the curtain's been pulled back right so Mm -hmm. um it's very clear now that college athletes and especially football players are being exploited um like if you didn't believe it before like I don't understand how you don't believe it now um things are it's, it's very clear things are very dangerous um 
it's an issue that I think has become politicized and I don't, I really don't understand why, but like, if I'll just say like, I, in June, I emailed the university of Texas athletic director, um, Crystal Conti, um, and, um, one of the associate ADs, um, Chris Plonsky about how I felt kind of like about Texas. It was, it was after, I think about 12 Texas football players had, I, I think the number was 12. I, I could be wrong. It might've been like eight or something, but um, football players, I saw a headline that they had tested positive for COVID and I was very concerned. So I, I sent them an email and I was just like, you know, Texas is like, I love Texas. Um, you know, my best friends are my teammates and like, I, I wouldn't trade my time at Texas for anything. Um, you know, like I loved being a longhorn and, and, but like Texas is in this position, you know, as a, as a leader, you know, in college athletics to kind of like be a leader in this moment and, and maybe, you know, like postpone the season or, or something. And, um, I was met with, I think like a bit of pushback. I got a phone call from, um, Mr. Del Conte the next day. Um, and he, he kind of just kind of like laid out the, the, um, plan and like what Texas was doing um with respect to COVID and like why they had allowed um athletes back on campus. Um I think I talked to him for about two hours. Um oh. I, I spoke to um some ath- some athletes that I knew there and other and at other schools. And it seemed like Texas really was doing like the best and had really great protocols, which is great. But I think in my mind I still was like you know, the one thing that I really wanted, and I thought that would have been really cool was like Texas to be a leader, right. And to like lead on this and to say, and, and to kind of like rally, you know, the troops for lack of a better phrase and say like, you know what, we're going to like put like football and athletics on hold. And um, like, we're going to try and like lobby with, you know, at the time that I emailed, um, you know, the athletic director, I, um, the cases and the number of cases in the state of Texas were spiking. Um, so I like mentioned him, I was like, why don't you talk to like, you know, governor Abbott and see like, you know, rally him. Like it was, it was before, you know, governor Abbott had even allowed like a mask, you know, uh, cities and counties to implement their own mask mandates. You know, I was like, why don't you lobby for that? And he was like, I don't want to get political. And I was just like this, it was really, it was like really upsetting, you know, to hear that. But, um, I just felt like Texas, you know, like had, you know, it was like, it could have been a really cool moment. Um, Yeah. So I, I just, I just, oh, go ahead. No, well, I just, I had to, and they're still playing. They're still playing at Texas. The big 12 is still on right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And what you said, honestly, like I just, so I was listening to a a really interesting episode of the, the intercollegiate podcast, which is worth checking out for folks who are not familiar with it. Um, And Daniel Libet was interviewing uh, Ross Dellinger and Dan Wolken. And uh, listen, I I have my concerns about some of the stuff that um, comes out of Ross Dellinger's Twitter feed, but he is connected to a lot of um, officials in like the SEC specifically, but across college football. And he was speaking, he was asked about, what the prevailing attitude was amongst all these like high up college football officials over the course of the pandemic, i.e. why were they doing? So this is just, this is why I'm bringing it up because you know what you were saying really made this kind of click for me. You know what he said? He said this on that podcast. He said, basically they were just 
following blind optimism. Blind optimism was the guiding principle this whole summer as people were suffering. We now know that at least 10 athletes have the severe heart condition, right? Associated with COVID, the complication, like really dangerous stuff. We knew that this is a risk. You knew this is You're telling us that you did this in June, right? I mean, like, we, this is not a surprise to anyone. These are people who are empowered with the ability to govern the health and safety of unpaid student workers, right? And blind optimism was the guiding principle, apparently, in, in how they were approaching everything. Um, so, you know, I just, I just feel like it's necessary to put that out there. Um, I'm, when, when they're saying we don't want to be political, it's part of the same thing, right? They're just completely abdicating responsibility. And it's, it's not acceptable. Yeah. And I think, and, and it's just, it was, yeah, it it was a very disappointing conversation for me because I, I just thought like, as someone who went to Texas and, um, is very proud of, of the university and, you know, this, this, our motto is what starts here changes the world. I was like, wow, this is like, this could be a moment, you know, I was like feeling very like, you know, I was like, I'm going to send this email and they're going to be like, yeah, right on. And like, that was not the the response that I got. And at the time, you know, like there was at the time that I sent this email, there wasn't even all of the, you know, there wasn't talk of the, um, I'm forgetting the student's name. And I believe it was Indiana whose mom went on Facebook and, and started talking about um, how he's suffered a lot, you know, like there weren't, there weren't these stories and there, and there wasn't this, this data about like how many students suffer from, or how many you know, athletes suffer from like myocarditis and, and all of this, um, um, or carditis, um, you know, like uh, there wasn't, there weren't stories about like, you know, how, uh, uh, um, how these, you know, how, how people suffer from these things. So it, it, um, yeah, I, it's, it's kind of like upsetting to, to see like now, um, I, I didn't, you know, like want to be right. But like, we've been in this pandemic since March, and like, things have not gotten better, things have gotten worse. And I have a lot of family in in other countries. And, you know, it's, it's very disheartening to see like, them on vacation, and like, we're still here, you know, like, I'm still living in my like, tiny apartment and and not going out because, you know, we can't get it under control. But, you know, um, I, I want better for, for athletes and I, I completely understand why they want to play. Like I get, I 100% get it. I um, played through a torn um, tendon my senior year of college because I didn't want to not play, you know? Um, so I get it. But, you know, I think I talked about this on Twitter a little bit, like the difference between my torn tendon and like, football players or volleyball players or basketball players playing now is that like I maybe would have like lost a little bit of movement in my thumb whereas like these athletes could lose their lives or you know be saddled with like really serious you know heart and or lung conditions for the rest of their life and it's just not the same Mm -hmm. um and so I kind of you know worry about that um and wish that you know schools would treat them less like entertainment and more like human beings. Absolutely. And, you know, I just, I have to like, really come like you rock for just like, you know, emailing your former AD. And I'm, it just makes me curious, you know, to what extent was that unique or not, but still, I mean, you are like showing that you care 
about your alma mater, that you care about the athletes that are still there. And so I just really like, thank you for doing that. Um, I think that's amazing. And, you know, something that like Nathan and Derek and I've been talking about is, you know, we, we really haven't seen um, like pro athletes, for example, we really haven't seen pro athletes advocating on behalf of college athletes for whatever reason that seems to be kind of missing from what's been going from this sort of college athlete and COVID conversation. Um, but yeah, so it was just, um, I mean, you, you tried to do something, right? I mean, that's, that's better than doing nothing at all. Um, and you know, I think too, obviously, obviously you know this, but the, the whole statement, like, we're not going to be political about this when they absolutely are making a political decision about whose lives matter and whose don't, you know, like, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was, and, and honestly, so one thing around that same time, I tried to pitch, you know, like kind of a, uh, a short op-ed to a number of places and, um, I, I ended up kind of turning that op-ed into this email um, to our AD. And it was basically like I watched, you know, all of these schools at the beginning or at the end of May or the beginning of June talk about how much they believe in this Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, not long after, we're watching, you know, a sport where, you know, in division one, 64% of, you know, division one football players are not white. Um, and 49% are black, you know, and we're watching, and these are the most vulnerable communities during this time. And, um, you know, we're watching these schools allow these, these athletes to get to, to, to potentially be at risk of COVID. And then, you know, there are no really strict protocols with respect to like when they can travel you know I haven't heard anyone say that like schools have you know quote-unquote bubbled their you know their teams or anything like that um so you know and we've heard stories of like some football players I think there was a football player at the University of Arizona who was like my mom's coming to pick me up like randomly you know um because he he wanted to go home and like there it which is fine, right? And I think it's something that they should be allowed to do. But it's also like, if students can freely go, come and go, you know, um, you know, they're potentially, you know, putting themselves and their families at risk if they're also, you know, co competing and working out and all of these things. So, um, and and in my mind, I kind of like, you know, circled back to you know, at the beginning of the summer when, you know, there were all these protests that are still happening, but, you know, that are not really seen on TV as much, these protests um, about the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and all, you know, you saw all of these coaches, you know, walking with their, their football players, you know, you saw Jim Harbaugh and Tom Herman and Davo Sweeney and Sweeney and like all these people talk, you know, um, you know, marching with their, their athletes. But like now I, I haven't heard any of them talk about, you know, the disproportionate effect of COVID on these communities that are so highly represented on their teams. And that's very disappointing. Yeah. Well, and so speaking about um, this broader question of, of the, the intersections with race here, um, 
I've noticed you've had some really interesting things to say, and I think really important things to say about uh, the way that the protest movement, and by that I mean the, the way that players have been resisting specifically, mm-hmm. how that has been covered by the media, how that's being talked about. You've made some really astute comments about the way that race is being framed by reporters that I'd love for you to share, because I think it's really critical for people to hear. Yeah, so um, I think the biggest thing for me is... Um, the what I feel like is is erasure of of these black athletes who kind of started this movement. Um, so I've seen you know reporters talk about how like Trevor Lawrence, for example, is the you know unofficial spokesperson of this of of college athletics. And to me, that that was just like something that was really disappointing to see because like this movement you know was started by black athletes. You know you had you know, the college athlete, um, unity guys on a few weeks ago. And like, they, they were like a big part of the reason why this movement, you know, got, got gained steam, you know, um, the summer. And then like going back even further, you know, like Ramogi Huma, who was like a big part of the, the NIL movement and Ed O'Bannon, you know, who, whose case, you know, went up to the Ninth Circuit and um, Kane Coulter, who's who y'all interviewed recently, like these black men like started this movement and have kept it going and like have made it like a big part of their work. And um, it, it's it's just disappointing to, to see them like kind of erased from the conversation because, you know, they did this at great personal cost. It's not very popular to take on the NCAA. It's not popular at all. You know, um, I think a lot about how, you know, a lot of, especially football players and basketball players are seen as entertainment, um, even at the professional level when they're making millions of dollars, right? Like a lot of people don't see LeBron James as a human being, um, which is, you know, a completely different conversation. But I think it it is really disappointing when like these these men and these individuals are not seen as human beings and then their their work is also erased um so i i hope that you know like reporters um and people who talk about this movement kind of you know focus um think about you know how they frame um you know the movement and the conversations with respect to the movement Absolutely. Well, Tezra, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. We, we, there's so many more questions we would love to ask you, but you've already given us so much already and just so, so many like rich details and stories and like your expertise is really incredible. So Nathan and I just really, really want to thank you for your generosity and your time. This was just a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. I, um, you know, I'm really appreciative of you um, speaking with me. And um, I think just one more thing that I want to say is like, I hope that people will, you know, continue to listen to women and individuals in non-revenue sports. Um, you know, like they are just as important to this movement, um, especially, you know, you look at the PAC-12 um, movement um, and they, you know, kind of speak on behalf of um you know, all, all athletes, but, um, reporters are not reaching out or not speaking to people who are not football players. Um, and, and I think that's a little disappointing because 
Um, while, you know, football and basketball players are a huge part of this movement and absolutely deserve to be heard because their labor is kind of like what keeps the machinery of, of this, you know, system going, um, you know, Olympic sport athletes also, um, should, should have their voices heard in this conversation. Amen to that. Yeah, I'll just say we have like a swimming week coming up. We're going to be interviewing a bunch of swimmers and we're definitely going to be expanding more to to athletes and Olympic sports. So point well taken. Awesome. That sounds great. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.